my name's Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club, Shocktober! Avant, you suck your blood! I'm the creature from the Black Lagoon! That's what he says, right? <laughs> I am the Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> yes. Da, 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 da. So, as per usual, we're going through horror selections for this most spookiest of times. And this week, we're talking about the Ramsey Brothers, the ultimate horror filmmakers out of India. When you say Bollywood horror, you're talking about the Ramsey Brothers. And there's a few reasons for that. If you go through the history of Indian cinema, they had a very powerful golden period during the 40s but they also had some very heavy censorship and because of that that kind of kept horror out of the big screens in the way that they took over in places like north america so it actually took a while for some filmmakers to finally take the chance and go all right we're going all in on this horrific stuff and once they did, boy, howdy, did they figure out that audiences wanted it. And the Ramsey brothers, as we'll talk about through this episode, they cranked out a lot of movies in a surprisingly short period of time, only a decade. That's because, you know, if the box office is booming, you got to keep making those horror films. The Ramsey brothers were a family of filmmakers. They worked under the company name Ramsey Films. Uh, the patriarch of the clan was Fatachand U. Ramsey, better known as F.U. Ramsey. Always brings a smile to my face when I see that credit pop up. <laughs> F.U. Ramsey, that's his name. You know, he kept the movies cheap and non-union by hiring his seven sons in various filmmaking capacities. You got Shyam and Tulsi Ramsey, who were the directors. Kumar Ramsey was the writer. Keshu Ramsey was the producer. Ganju Ramsey, the cinematographer. There were other Ramseys who handled sound and editing. It was a whole family operation. And it wasn't something that came like in a flash of lightning that, oh, we should make horror movies. It was something that came very slowly of them figuring out based on the movies that they were making that there was an audience there for them. Now, a lot of the stuff that I'm going to be talking about today, I just cribbed completely from Pete Toombs' Mondo Macabro book which has two great chapters on Indian horror uh, cinema. And he talks about the Ramsey brothers a lot in it in ways that there's very few English language places that have actually covered their career. And most of the films that they made are still unsubtitled and unavailable in any English language format. Well, while we're crediting our sources, I'd like to give a shout out to a writer named Danielle Burgos, who wrote for Mubi. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing her name. She wrote an article called Blood Brothers, the Ramsey film history that has a lot of what I know about the Ramseys. You're right, though. The films are not well known outside of India, unless you have a copy of Mondo Macabro or perhaps you're shopping on certain cult DVD websites you might have seen the Indian Dracula from their 1990 film Band Darwaza there's also perhaps a small chance that you've seen their bootleg Nightmare on Elm Street remake Mahakal also known as The Monster well I think that Mahakal is the one that if you talk about Indian cinema most people have seen because it's the one that has like the easiest hook for people that you go oh it's a remake of Nightmare on Elm Street but it's 132 minutes long and there's dancing in it. And when you watch the movie, yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's kind of stiff and it's a lit, it's colorful, but not as colorful as it should be. 
And I think it actually does a disservice to the Ramsey brothers as kind of horror filmmakers because it's the most popular film of theirs in international circles. But it's also like one of their late period ones when you can feel them kind of tired of making these kind of pictures. Mahakal was the only one I had seen before this week. I saw it maybe a year or two ago. My feeling about Mahakal is kind of similar to how I feel about the other two Ramsey films I've now seen, which is that there are some good things in it and they're also very long and like a lot of Indian masala films, probably better appreciated with an audience. Yeah, that's the one thing about these pictures is that like most of them are two and a half hours long. They were meant to be watched with a big crowd, have an interval in the middle where you could take a break and then come back like watching a second picture and that you see a lot of people you know, when they write stuff on Letterboxd, go, oh, there's just too much movie. And it's like, yeah, well, it wasn't meant to be experienced in one sitting. That is too much. <laughs> like, you're not supposed to binge it in that way. Now, for the most part, I mean, Indian pop cinema in general is not particularly well known among Western cinephiles. I mean, RRR was a big hit this year, but it feels like Western genre buffs are determined to, like, scour the bottom of the barrel of Italian exploitation films before venturing into <laughs> anywhere else. But even among the people who care and know about Indian cinema, the Ramsey films do not have a very strong reputation. They were regarded in their time as disreputable B-movies for unsophisticated audiences. In fact, I think the Ramsey said, places where even the trains don't stop, that's where our business was. You know, the really far out rural areas. And the Ramsey films are all rural horror films. Pete Toombs uh, points this out in his book that, you know, horror and this happens a lot in international or even uh, North American cinema, is often away from the cities. But in the Ramsey films, it's not necessarily because that's where, you know, horror lies, the unknown of like these hillbillies out there. It's more like, oh, this is you're going back home. And that's where this kind of horrific, these curses, these monsters can spring from. It's somewhere where it's like down in the roots. It's not in the city or, you know, the horrors of modernization. It's something that has existed forever. I'll be honest, on a pure entertainment level, the movies that I saw for this podcast kind of disappointed me a little bit. Really? What I will say is I do think the Ramsey movies are really interesting to think about because they're all very similar and the themes, the ideas, the taboos and what they suggest about Indian society is pretty consistent in all the ones that I've seen. And what they suggest is a country that is torn between modernization and tradition, a country that is sort of struggling with some more Western perspective on like oh i don't know let's say sexuality and gender um like like these ramsey movies had a reputation in india as really pushing the envelope in terms of sex and violence which is funny to think because like when you watch them they're barely pg-13 well they're very violent though like people are decapitated there's blood all over the place i think will came disappointed because he wanted to see some breasts and he didn't see any. I mean, look, I always want to see some brass, but I do think like the sexuality of these movies are interesting because like they're kind of leering. You know, there are a lot of like women in bikinis, women in bathtubs, a lot of sort of sexual suggestiveness. But then the movies are also quite they suggest a sort of punitive attitude towards sexuality as well. They, they suggest a great unease with sexuality. These movies also are constantly establishing this dichotomy between the city and the country, you know, in the city. Everyone is sophisticated in the country. The country is this place where, you know, rubes and hicks live. 
of. Uh, but it's also uh, the place where, you know, great ancient evil exists. You know, even as these movies sort of look uh, look down on the country as being like hick town, there's a suggestion that like, oh, OK, but India really does need to get back to its roots. It needs to get back to religion and, and respect for spirituality and that sort of thing. And we should point out as well that like a lot of these Indian masala films, at least the ones that I have consumed, the principal characters are always incredibly wealthy like living in these gigantic mansions. And I think this comes out of audiences probably are comfortable with seeing characters like this. And also, this is the standing sets that they have. So this is what they're going to shoot in because they're these big houses. Lest I sound too down on the Ramsey movies, I do want to say these movies do have a lot of cool stuff in them. The practical effects, the monster makeups are really neat. I love the lighting and the fog and the rambunctious camera work during some of the horror scenes. These movies are worth looking at. Well, if I can give a little bit of rundown, the Ramsey family history was. They were a Hindi family who hailed from what is now Pakistan. They fled to India after the 1947 partition. They settled in Mumbai, where F.U. Ramsey, the patriarch, became a shop owner. And, you know, in the 1950s, the film industry was really blossoming in Mumbai. F.U. joined with a number of other local business owners to finance a movie in 1954, which was not a hit, but he got the filmmaking bug. And so a decade later, in the 1960s, he started to make more films, and they were also unsuccessful. So by 1970, the family is drowning in debt. But at that point, they had just made a movie called There Was a Little Girl in 1970. And some of the sons, some of the Ramsey kids, had gone to see it in a movie theater and found that there was a scene in it involving a monster, or actually a character disguised as a monster. The opening sequence where there's a bank robbery, and there's a monster, and he's bulletproof. And the audience went wild for it. Yeah, that's right. And they said, hey, why not make a horror movie? And so F.U. Ramsey said, okay, we'll scrape together whatever money we have left after all these flops. And he made his kids read The Five C's of Cinematography, that famous textbook, which was their only filmmaking training. And uh, they went out and they made a movie called Two Yards Underground in 1972. Shoestring movie, small crew, big success. But it was the 80s that was really their golden age, you know, and it was the decade where they were making all these movies that really developed this reputation of, you know, very sleazy and disreputable movies that were consistent money makers. And the biggest of them all was Piranha Mandir. And Piranha Mandir has basically the template of everything that you would see in their movies from this point on. Big mansion, monster, 30 plots. This is the one out of all the ones that I watched that I had the most fun with, that I was never really bored with even though that it's 144 minutes that the songs were banging there was a weird jungle action subplot that was taking place with the uh, haunted mansion thing there's also a whole series of sequences that are just a ripoff of like some italian spaghetti western that was inspired by good the bad and the ugly doesn't really have anything to do with the rest of it but you know it's just to pack out that running time to give a full experience well if i can quote from that article i mentioned on movie by daniel burgos she says, here's the standard Ramsey template. A young, clearly in love couple leave the city for the country, impelled by a lingering family curse or just to get away. There they discover a not-so-ancient evil, one or two generations removed, which no relative thought to kill way back when. Fog rolls, taxidermy looms, the monster strikes. The lovers sing their feelings for each other. A comic side plot of a randy housekeeper or an angry villager unfolds. That is basically all these movies that I saw, and that's definitely Piranha Man. Dear. The main character is a young woman named 
Suman, who lives a life of luxury with her rich father. She falls in love with a middle or perhaps working class boy named Sanjay, but her father disapproves of and forbids the relationship, seemingly because of class difference. But actually, there's a darker, hidden reason, and we find out in the prologue of the movie. You see, Suman and her father are direct descendants of the Raja Hariman Singh of Bijapur. See, 200 years ago, okay, a curse was put on the Raja and all his descendants. His daughter, the princess, was captured by a devil worshipper who sucked out her life force. And when the devil worshipper was executed, he used the power that he had accumulated to curse the Raja's family. So every woman in the Raja's family line would die in childbirth. And by die in childbirth, as we see in a flashback, that means turn into a hideous monster. That happened to Suman's mother, and her dad fears it will happen to her. So that's the plot, but there is so much more plot than that. You know? Well, the real plot kicks in when his daughter hears this and goes, okay, I don't believe you. I'm running off with my new beau and his two friends, and we're going to this big spooky castle where there's paintings that follow you as you cross the room. The taps bleed blood and all sorts of spooky stuff happen and basically any movie that the ramsey brothers had seen at the time probably gets a little bit of play in this and the biggest one that they clearly had just seen when they made piranha mandir is a little picture called the evil dead because oh boy does the camera move like sam raimi's camera does there's a little bit of exorcist in here too isn't there or am i confusing this with virana i think you're confusing this with virana piranha mandir <laughs> sorry there's monsters and there's a lot of killing there's an action scene every 45 minutes where a bunch of goons show up and either the boyfriend or his mustachio pal will fight these guys in very energetic and physical fights where the fist will miss by a good you know couple feet when they throw them punches i did like this movie there's a lot of stuff in it. Sometimes it felt a little bit like too much stuff. Never! Never! <laughs> okay, never. Uh, so you could kind of feel yourself being disconnected from it as you were watching it? Even the sort of horror scenes, they start to seem a little samey to me after a you while. You didn't like the scene where the woman was like stuck in the wheelchair that was going to toss her off the top floor? No, no, that was good. I mean, don't get me wrong. All these movies are two and a half hours long and they've got at least 30 great minutes. <laughs> oh, ouch. <laughs> I, say, I say that with fondness, I swear. <laughs> I enjoyed almost all of this movie, even though like lame comedic sidekick stuff usually i'm like ugh this time i don't know it was fun it was goofy it felt like five different movies smooshed together and by the time we got to the end which is like the big climactic sequence in the deep dark cavern where all of these movies uh, seemingly end i was having fun uh, nice and violent goes out with a big bang and it also feels like all the ramses on this film were connected to making it that they were trying to maximize it in a way that I don't really feel in some of their later films, specifically The Monster. But you can still feel in the other picture that I watched for this podcast, and probably the one that most people have seen, because I think it's one of the ones that Mondo Macabro put out, Verana from 1988. When I said earlier that these movies display a certain ambivalence around matters of sex, I think this one is exhibit A. The villain of the movie is a witch called Nikita, who's really more of a succubus. Years ago, she was terrorizing a village and was executed by an angry mob. After the execution, her body was stolen by a cult of devil worshippers, and th her spirit was put in the body of a little girl. In fact, the daughter of the man who led the mob. Years pass, 
the little girl grows up to become Jasmine, played, by the way, by an actress named Jasmine. Uh, Classic Jackie Chan. (laughs) She's a normal, happy young woman who every now and then becomes possessed by Nikita. As the film goes on, she becomes repeatedly possessed and under this influence seduces and kills men. She's also, when she's not possessed, a very attractive young woman who likes to take baths and dance in skimpy clothing, often within the sight lines of the hell. We didn't even talk about the sexual content of the last film that disappointed Will, which is just leering at women in one-piece bathing suits. Hubba hubba. Yeah, uh, the women take uh, showers in one-piece bathing suits. It's interesting to see what is the envelope pushing in India at this time. It, it's fascinating. I think just in general, like the thing that compels me most about these movies is what they suggest about uh, a society that is struggling with questions of modernization. I mean, the Ramsey brothers said that censorship was a massive issue when they were making this these films, and it kind of defined which things they could push very far and they found out very quickly that violence is something that the censors don't really have a problem with so you can get decapitations on screen within the first 10 minutes but anything you know sexual should be avoided at all costs even the fact that there's reference to masturbation in Piranha Mandir was a big deal and it was just like a comedic aside at some point but I, I saw some reviewers like point that out specifically that oh boy I can't believe this appeared during this period in 1984 in Indian cinema well as I understand like a lot of B or C or D or Z filmmakers the Ramsey brothers were able to get away with a bit more because they were flying under the radar the censors didn't really take them seriously by the time of Verana they were having more and more trouble because the movies were really making money and were really Really being seen by a lot of people. Yeah, it's the classic thing that happened in the United States with the slasher films that, you know, the censors at first say, okay, you know, you can get by on this because it's probably just a one-off. But then when they start, you know, continually pushing the envelope, censors are like, well, well, we can't have this. This needs to be cut down as much as possible. Virena is again, big mansion, spooky stuff is happening. This one has the bonus of a devil cult who wears really funny uh, penis-shaped heads the entire time. And it has the big sets as well that you see in all of these pictures. I think it's a little bit slower paced, I found, than Piranha Mandir. So it took a little bit, you know, for me to get into it. And it seems like almost like a sucking out of life as the Ramses continue to make these horror pictures. But there's enough that's different than Piranha Mandir that, you know, you could watch it and recommend it. But, but you got to love the, that monster makeup because it's going to show up again and again and again. Now, Mahakal, which is 1994, very close to the end of the Ramsey's filmmaking career. You watched this one this week. As I say, when I saw it a year ago, I thought it was pretty fun. But I guess in the context of watching their other movies, it revealed itself as lesser. I just found it kind of stiff and uncommitted to kind of delivering all the stuff that they had done earlier in their career. It is obsessed with copying beats from Nightmare on Elm Street. Very past its expiration date, I might point out, because uh, the Mahakal came out in 1994. And for some weird reason, it doesn't even rip off from any of the other Nightmare on Elm Streets. Just the first one, a little bit of the second one uh, with some possession stuff in the back half. But it's just like the same movie you've seen before, even the musical cues, but just not as fun. The few songs that show up, not bangers, not fun to listen to, very little gore. Uh, yeah, not much to recommend here. I mean, other than the novelty factor, which is what, you know, a lot of people get out of it when they watch this. As you say, it's the easiest sell. It's the Indian nightmare on Elm Street. Didn't you like the character, though, who's obsessed with Michael Jackson? That he looks like Michael Jackson and goes, woo, all the time. Sure, I guess. I did enjoy the fact that he plays multiple characters for some reason and that there is a long sequence 
that will be baffling to any viewer, me including, that is a reference to an Amitabh Bakshan movie that I then went up and added to my watch list because I'm like, ooh, this looks fun. Well, speaking of Amitabh Bakshan, it is important to remember that another reason why these movies resonated in the 1980s was because Amitabh Bakshan, you know, the big romantic lead in Indian cinema was so culturally dominant at the time that these movies were just so different than the sort of thing that he was making, you know? And we should discuss as well that we are coming this from a completely North American perspective. Oh, you think so? so? <laughs> so people listening to this writing the angry notes that we missed a bunch of cultural context like the fact that a lot of these horror movies i mean they're rep- repetitive in a certain way because they're dealing with you know the indian horror tropes that are not specifically stuff that we uh, think of in north america when it comes to horror movies like the fact these long curses even the monster it's ripping off a little bit of nightmare on elm street too but Uh, the monster possesses a woman near the end of the picture. And that is something that repeats again and again in all these Ramsey productions. Now, in the mid-1990s, the films were becoming less successful and the Ramseys moved away from film production. The family did a very popular TV show called Z Horror, which ran for many years. Oh, what a great title. (laughs) Now there is a whole new generation of Ramseys working in film and television. They continue to distribute their classic films worldwide. The Ramseys, for example, facilitate the sort of deals that get their movies distributed in the U.S. by Mondo Macabro and Massacre Video and companies like that. I mean, I want to see all of their horror movies come out. Uh, in 1991, they made Ajuba Kudra Ka, which is a story about a little girl befriending a Yeti. Yes, please. Or even their earlier one they made in 1982, Mot. Kasaya, which it says plot unknown, but the poster, if you look on Letterbox, is like a big bug-eyed uh, sci-fi alien-like thing. I want to see that. Lots to explore. It's a vast filmography, I'm sure, with many extraordinary images. Even in these three movies, all of them have incredible images in them. And yeah, Piranha Mandir is, at least of the ones I've seen, the one to start with. I do think, though like you mentioned a little bit earlier, that it feels like international genre fans don't really want to touch these films. And it's kind of baffling because they have so many wonders to see. And I assume that Mondo Macabro kind of stopped putting out these Indian horror films because they probably weren't selling that well. Uh, I heard Mondo Macabro has plans for an Indian horror box set coming soon. So so yeah, keep, a, keep an eye out for that. I do think like there is a whole wide world of fascinating culty genre cinema out there. I mean, we did an episode on Indonesian genre cinema. I know you're very interested in Filipino genre cinema. I would just like people to explore a little off the beaten path more. Yeah, get these films, give them Italian style posters and the fans will buy them. But if it has like a knife on the cover and it's painted, boom, it'll just go into their cart and they're going to want it. So that's what the companies need to do. So Justin, do we have any letters? Uh, as per usual, you can send us letters at Podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Brandon Lim. And he goes, hey, Justin and Will, love the UO Ping episode you recently did. You are officially my two favorite white guys who love to talk about Asian genre cinema. Oh, <laughs> that's a that's a great honor considering there's so many of wow, them. Wow, we're better than Bay Logan. Oh, boy. <laughs> he shall not be named. The letter continues, as an avid weed smoker, I find it increasingly difficult to retain information about the cast and crew behind so many of these beloved kung fu action films. So your research is greatly appreciated and provides a nice archive for people seeking out more info on the history of this amazing period in Hong Kong cinema. It was quite refreshing to hear you talk about his work with In Sing Young, and I'm embarrassed to say I had no idea Jackie Chan Sifu, played by Yung Siu Tin in Drunken Master and Snake and Eagle Shadow, was in fact Wu Ping's dad, which makes me love the character even more. This 
episode also reminded me that I had forgotten to reach out much earlier about a previous Patreon episode you did regarding Gong Shu Dao, the Kung Fu Vanity Project from Billionaire Jack Ma. Oh boy, what an episode that was, wasn't it, Will? Just to give people some context, the Chinese billionaire Jack Ma spent a small part of his fortune making a 20-minute movie where he fights and wins in fights against a variety of kung fu stars, including Jet Li and Donnie Yen. He uh, has a little bit of trivia here that I think is very relevant to that episode. I thought it was also important to note that the context of this short film was not only to promote China to the world, but to also greatly repair damage that had been done to the image of traditional Chinese kung fu after controversial MMA fighter, I'm not going to say this name correctly, Zhu Xiaodong, aka Mad Dog, became famous in 2017 for beating up fake kung fu masters in a series of viral videos showing him defeating various Tai Chi and Wing Chun masters. The first being Wei Li, a self-proclaimed Tai Chi master who was beaten by Mad Dog in less than 20 seconds. You know, that's something I'm not tapped into. I think we've talked about this a little bit before, like the MMA scene. It just doesn't really hold that much interest for me. Yeah, not really for me either. But then I'm not interested in all that many sports. Yeah, because we're nerds. Look at us. we got glasses. But hey, if you if you like it, I think that's great. He was also sued in 2019 after calling another Tai Chi master, Chen Xiaowang, a fraud. And subsequently, his social credit score in China has become so poor that it's restricted his ability to around his own property, stay in certain hotels, travel on high-speed rail, or even buy plane tickets. He even has to wear face paint and cover his back tattoo in order for any of his fights to be televised in China. Despite his controversial views, he still considers himself a Chinese patriot and even voiced support for the pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong and his YouTube channel, Brother Dong's Hot Takes, which makes me more sympathetic towards the situation. How ironic it is that Jack Ma has now also been canceled by the Chinese government for expressing criticism of the communist regime. A big no-no there. So perhaps it's time for him and Brother Dong to collab on, sir, on uh, something. And then the letter writer wrote, insert quippy response from Will and or Justin. All right. Well, I will say that, I mean, I think Jack Ma was criticizing the PRC from the right. I think uh, Jack Ma was shooting his mouth off. I mean, you know, you, you get to have a certain amount of money and you think you can say just anything. And uh, he was saying that some of these uh, redistributive policies uh, aren't very good. And, um, you know, then uh, I, I guess he got gulagged for a while, maybe allegedly yeah there was an article that showed uh, that mentioned that he like showed up at an old school that he went to but then he's basically been missing s- since then so he showed up to an old school and said hello i am alive here i <laughs> yes. am holding today's newspaper and glory to the party and then they put him away for for even longer and uh I can talk to all sides of the political divide, just as I think it's kind of cool that this stupid billionaire spent some of his money on a vanity movie where he fights Jet Li. I also think it's kind of cool that uh, the Communist Party fucking shut him up. The letter writer continues. Also, I want to point out that the Review Cinema in Toronto is doing a bunch of great 35 millimeter screenings. Thanks to a friend of the podcast, Peter Kapolowski. Uh, I'll be programming my very first 35mm Black Belt Cinema screening there on November 26th with Indonesian cult favorite Lady Terminator, aka Nasty Hunter, and that you can get tickets online now. I mean, we're big fans of Lady Terminator, right? Well, oh, yeah, and I think Peter owns that print, does he not? Because, he does. Because I saw that print... 
uh, 10 years ago at the Toronto Underground Cinema with an audience of like five other people. What a thrill it was. I mean, to see Lady Terminator on 35mm film. So folks, if you're listening, normally I wouldn't take too kindly on people plugging their events in our letters section. But in this case, if you are within 500 miles driving distance, you should be there. If you are in another country, you should figure out a way to, to get over to Canada to see Lady Terminator on 35mm because that's a once in a lifetime opportunity or more realistically, a once every five years opportunity in Toronto. Well, I'm a pal with Brandon Lim. He actually shows up on the commentary track for the long out of print Golden Age video release of Kung Fu Zombie. <laughs> and he writes here in the letter, yes, I just dropped some shameless self-promotion on your asses. You guys have never given me a shout out on the podcast before. <laughs> so I felt incumbent to take matters into my own hands. I have no regrets. Keep up the great work, guys. P.S. If you don't read this email on the podcast, you're both racist. <laughs> Brandon does great screenings. We actually went to one of his on the beach when we watched Killer Crocodile. Oh, that was a great screening. No, really, Brandon's good people. And the Lady Terminator screening, I couldn't endorse it more highly. Our next letter is, and Will, I knew this was going to happen, on the subject of Scooby-Doo. Because don't you remember, we may have dissed Scooby-Doo in a Patreon episode? Uh, no, I don't remember. But yeah, sure. I, that sounds like something I would do. Yeah, we said, who cares about Scooby-Doo, the classic version, at this point in time? Oh, I do remember this. Okay, just for some further context. Yeah, we were talking about how there have been many, many different incarnations of Scooby-Doo over the years. Some of the recent ones have fans. And I always thought that, like, the one from the 60s, the fucking Hanna-Barbera cartoon, was bad and was for Ooh. children. Uh, well, you're about to get <laughs> yeah, lashing about that. All right. The letter starts. Hello, gentlemen. I'm a great fan of your podcast. I imagine the letter's written in this town. <laughs> I'm a great fan of your podcast and find it so entertaining that it's difficult finding other movie podcasts that scratch that ish. However, on a recent episode, you did something appalling. You insulted the sublime lo-fi textures of inimitable early Scooby-Doo. I will grant that most Scooby-Doo could be described as Drecht or Kitsch, and it did not take the franchise long to descend to that level. But sirs, for two seasons, when it was known as Scooby-Doo, Where Are You?, it was nothing short of canonical pop termite art, an accidental outburst of energy from the great unconscious, synthesizing decades of aesthetic into a white-hot formula powerful enough to fuel half a century of this franchise, which has never equaled these first 25 episodes. Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? is a dreamscape, conjuring its dramaturgical form the baby boomer id, the belief that a group of determined young people can solve the problems left by its forebears. Oh my God. Because the second half of the 20th century, dreaming of the first, with its crude animations, hoary vaudevillian shtick, beautiful, eerie Walt Paraguay background art, Ted Nichols' superlative incidental music, and the indescribably potent atmosphere, not unlike that which you ascribe to Poverty Row Productions, Scooby-Doo Where Are You achieves a hypnotic, haunting quality and becomes a hinge-connecting culture, a half-century predating it, and a half-century since. There is a reason Scooby-Doo is easily Hanna-Barbera's most enduring, continuously relevant property, even surpassing Tom and Jerry, for a moment in time, it embodied the world. I implore you to reconsider some of the finest Scooby-Doo episodes, such as Hassle in the Castle, Never Ape an Ape Man, Scooby-Doo and the Mummy 2, Jeepers, It's the Creeper, and Haunted House Hang-Up. 
To the extent anyone on the millennial Zoomer cusp, as I am, and younger is interested in pop culture and kitsch aesthetic of the earlier portions of the 20th century, you can thank Scooby-Doo. Aside from its inherent spiritual in-depthness to the decades preceding it in the specifics, it is where I first heard of the Three Stooges, of Sonny and Cher, Laurel and Hardy, Don Knotts, countless others. The, ce the celebrities were from subsequent and lesser seasons. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just going to say, he's talking about the new Scooby-Doo movies, which I have seen a few episodes of, and which I, I would be very interested to hear your argument for that. But anyway, go ahead. But the fact remains that Scooby-Doo is a vital window into culture whose memory today threatens to go extinct. I don't think Scooby-Doo's memory is threatening to go extinct. I think Scooby-Doo is a very strong brand right now. For every new child with even a passing interest in such things when their parents are not to thank, surely it is Scooby-Doo. Respect his name. Gracias ago canum. Well, I'm very moved. What can I say? I mean, I, I want to go to Joseph Hanna's grave and kiss the soil in front of it and make amends. I mean, when, when you're talking about lo-fi textures, you've got my attention. You know, I thought I could just dismiss Scooby-Doo uh, as dog shit children's stuff, and, and I would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for this meddling letter writer. <laughs> he wrote so many big words. It was so hard for me to pronounce. <laughs> you know what? I can agree with everything he said in that letter. Maybe I will go check out some of those episodes. You know, it's the spooky season. Love these titles. Hassle in the Castle. Never Ape an Ape Man. I think it's maybe just the repetitive nature of the Scooby-Doo TV show that I watched a lot as a kid made me go, ah, it's just not that interested. And like I said on that episode, and there's no defense of this in the letter, those classic episodes, no real monsters. That's a big issue. You're right. It's always the old carnival barker or the old fairground keeper who's like dressed as a Dracula or something and they unmask him, right? So as per usual, you can send us letters at Podcast at gmail.com. And on our Patreon this week, we're talking about the big vamp himself, Nosferatu. That is correct. F.W. Murnau's 1922 classic. So uh, check us out, Talking Silent Horror Cinema, on patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. Next week, hey, you want to keep the vampire theme going, Will, and do the Christopher Lee Hammer Horror Dracula films? Ooh, I like the idea. This will be our fourth and final Shocktober episode, and uh, it will probably drop in Spookvember because uh, we've been a little bit off schedule this month, I'm afraid. But we, you are going to get your, your contractually mandated four Shocktober episodes. And just to give a little taste, I mean, Christopher Lee, Dracula, those are movies that I never particularly loved when I was younger, and I f I'm trying to develop more of a taste for now that I'm older and wiser. Never had much of an association with them. The few I've seen, I very much enjoyed, especially the later ones when they start to experiment with the Dracula formula. Let's say Horror of Dracula, Dracula Has Risen from the Grave, and uh, Dracula AD 1972. Oh, yep, that's exactly the ones I was going to recommend. So those are the ones we will check out, probably check out some more. I think we did a Patreon episode on the non-Christopher Lee uh, Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, right? Yeah, that one I like. Yeah, that one's a lot of fun. So we'll be talking about all of those next week. Until then, my name's Justin McGlue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So, Justin, you went to the City of Dreams. You went to the film factory itself, Los Angeles. How was it? I did indeed. And it was fun. We were there for a week. It felt very rushed going from thing to thing that I had planned out for us to do. But a lot of the time was also spent at theme parks. We went to Disneyland and I guess it's Disney California Adventure for like the first two days that we were there. And while I had a lot of fun, what I realized very quickly is 
I don't have much of an affinity for most of these Disney properties. Like, what are the big Disney feature films that are not part of the 90s renaissance that you have that much of an affinity for? Well, so I haven't been to Disneyland or Disney World or any Disney place since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Uh, And back then, they've bought a lot of stuff since then. They've bought uh, Star Wars and uh, Marvel. And I have to assume the parks are pretty heavily on that now, right? Uh, They do. I rode the two new Star Wars rides. And I gotta say, a little bit disappointed in both of them, especially the Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run. Imagine, Will, playing an arcade game where they don't explain the rules and you have to hit weird buttons and be in perhaps the worst position of being an engineer or just have to hit one button during the ride on this motion simulator. Doesn't that sound like fun though? You want to wait an hour in line? Yeah. Well, okay. So you went to Universal Studios. Love Universal Studios. (laughs) I went to Universal Studios Orlando when I was a kid. And back then it was very different. First of all, the movies were very different. They had a Back to the Future ride, a Jaws ride, E.T., Terminator 2, you know, stuff that was really popular in the 90s. But also there were a lot of rides that were sort of like about the making of movies. There was a ride for the movie, the that immortal Charlton Heston classic, Earthquake, that was mostly about special effects. Well, guess what? That ride is still there. If you take the Universal Backlot Whoa. Tour, there's still the Earthquake thing. Oh my thing. God. Okay, tell me more. Okay, so the Universal Backlot Tour is basically where all the rides are like smushed into one. So you get the King Kong 3D experience that Peter Jackson did. You go through all the backlots. You're supposed to get Jaws, but it was down when I was there, which was a bit of a bummer. I wanted Jaws to pop out of the water. And you also get the big earthquake one where like the thing shakes. You see like a, a train crash into uh, water comes spilling. I mean, that's what you want. The, the memories are flowing back. And it's still there if you take the Universal Backlot Tour. I'm not sure about Orlando. Did you see Norman Bates's house or is that somewhere else? It is still there. Norman Bates did not come out and run at me, unfortunately, which he sometimes does because they were setting up for Halloween Horror Nights which uh, made me a little bit sad. It's always a bummer when you go to these uh, parks and like stuff is down because you're like, this is the only time I'm going to be here in like 10 years. (laughs) Why can't it work? Like at Disneyland, every second ride we went to broke down and we had to sit there for five to one time 15 minutes before it started up again. So did you do any other movie stuff when you were in LA? I did visit like the bookstores that are like movie related, like Hollywood Book and Poster, which is essentially like a closet that Emily was like, I'm just going to stay out of this (laughs) as I went through it. I haven't been to LA since I was a kid and I've dreamed of going to Hollywood Book and Poster for years. It was also a lot influenced by the fact that I was with someone else. So I could not go to the amazing bookstore, the Iliad, and spend five hours there, which I would have liked to do. But, you know, I have to take the other person's interest in account as well. I know. Doesn't it just suck being considerate in a relationship? Oh, awful. Being like, oh, wait, let me look through these movie books for uh, an entire day looking for like a Leonard Maltin published, a book he edited, like the draft of it. I'm like, oh boy, all these hours were worth it. She said her favorite thing that Disney were great moments was Mr. Lincoln, the animatronic Lincoln ride. (laughs) 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 We're just like a long slideshow and then... Uh, the curtains open and the animatronic Lincoln from like the World's Fair stands up and gives a speech and the him standing up is like the big wow moment of the entire thing. That sounds awesome. I mean, I love animatronics and there's a lot of them in Disney. So there is fun to have, um, you know, with that. The problem is the thing I was like the most excited for the Haunted Mansion turns into the Nightmare Before Christmas Haunted Mansion in September and October. So it gets like a whole overdue, which is like, oh, man, that stinks. I want to see all the original IP characters 
of Disneyland, not like the movies, like even the dark ride that I went on, like um, the Little Mermaid dark ride, like most of it was broken. Like the animatronics just were not working, which is a big. There's part of me that's a little bit sad that the Pirates of the Caribbean ride in Orlando now has like Captain Jack Sparrow. Yeah, it's infested with Johnny Depp. And it's not just like the generic pirates that were there in the 50s and 60s. They're all still there. Uh, It's just Johnny Depp has been added throughout the ride here or there and there's like a big animatronic of him at the end i was surprised there is still a walk around johnny depp i mean uh captain jack sparrow at disneyland and boy the people that were there could not get enough of him like they were crowding around for photos they loved people love captain jack what can you say i did spend two days at those disney parks and i had fun there was just too many people and that was really a bummer. Like waiting in line for like an hour and a half for a ride. It hurts, man. It hurts. While at Universal, Simpson ride was fine. The Harry Potter ride, really fun. Lots of uh, big animatronic things coming towards you. You're like flying uh, like two stories up in the air in your seats. Well, I'm sorry there were so many people, but one day a real rain will come and wash the scum from the streets. I think that in retrospect, I should have probably gone in like February, like the real off months. I thought that October would be an off month. It is not because people love all that Halloween stuff at Disney and Universal. So I did go to the Hollywood Walk of Fame. It's as dirty as people have said. Well, there you have it, folks. Hollywood to clue. I wish I could have had time to go on some Studio Backlot tours. Friend of the podcast, Dan Port, who appeared on an episode of the No Such Thing as a Bad Movie, offered to give me uh, a tour of Sony, uh, the backlot, and it just didn't fit into the schedule. So there was more stuff to do. But we were taking lists everywhere that cost $45. So it was tough to get to as many places as we wanted to. And, you know, the city where it never rains, even though it did rain when we were there. And it looked like people were reacting as if aliens were coming down. Uh, When I went to L.A. when I was, I think, eight or nine years old, we took a star tour, my family and I. Uh, We wanted to do it and we didn't. We did the bus tour through the Hollywood Hills. And, like, I took photos of the houses, which is crazy because now somewhere in a box in storage, I have all these pictures of just, like, houses in L.A. with no way to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no way to know whose they were. I think one of them was Michael J. Fox's. Wow. When the bus went on to like Sunset Boulevard or maybe it was Rodeo Drive or, you know, whatever. The guy doing the tour said something like, that that store, that's a really famous clothing store. A lot of movie stars go there. Just last week I was there. I saw Robert De Niro there. And I remember hearing that and thinking, wow, I wish I could see a famous person. How That's so lucky. What if I see Robert De Niro on the street? And it, it never occurred to me that like he might have been lying. No, Will. You think so? <laughs> uh, I do have to say we did go to Rodeo Drive, did not see anyone famous. We walked around and Emily said it best. Who is this for? <laughs> it's for the good fella himself, Robert De Niro, apparently. <laughs> Listen, uh, me and Will, we'd love to come up to L.A. if any uh, rich people want to fly us up to their mansion to entertain them. We'd we'd happily take that deal, right? Do anything for them. (laughs) 